This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Moreland in Melbourne's inner north. We usually record before a live audience, but due to coronavirus restrictions, today we have an online audience. Today's big question, why advocate for social justice? We're asking this question today to Reverend Tim Costello. Tim is one of Australia's leading voices for social justice. He has previously worked as Mayor of St Kilda, a Baptist pastor, CEO of World Vision, and is presently Executive Director of MICA Australia. Tim is a frequent media commentator and author, speaker, former Victorian of the Year, and was also named a National Living Treasure. And he joins me now. Tim, welcome to Bigger Questions. Lovely to be with you, Robert. It's great that you're here. Now, Tim, apparently you're a National Living Treasure. How do you feel about that title? Well, there are some odd things in life, uh, Robert. And uh, one of the very odd things was when the National Trust rang me and said there'd been a survey of Australians and... uh, I'd been voted uh, in Australia's 100 National Living Treasures. I must admit, great shock. I um, didn't see the surveys in the paper, nor have I actually met anybody who, who ever voted. Right. Who am I to distrust the press? Well, apparently there's a lot of sports people on the list, uh, and the list was created obviously to honour Australians who have made a substantial and enduring contribution to Australian life. Lots of sports people, not so many church leaders. So what do you think that says about what Australians value? Well, I think it says they value sport more than religion. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting when you think that, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian heritage of this uh, nation from, well, Captain Cook on has been strongly uh, embedding the institutions and uh, the church has, it seems, floated off uh, the public square mm-hmm. and isn't looked to with the same level of interest, relevance, whereas sports people are. Mm. So I, I think your, your question implies uh, a drift that probably is true. So the list would be different if it was compiled 100 years ago, perhaps? Almost certainly. We would uh, have honoured far more who had been clergy and uh, uh, nation builders in that sense are less than sportsmen. Right, yes. It's great that you can join us here today, Tim. Now, we like to kick off bigger questions with some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today, we're asking Tim Costello about social justice. So, Tim, our smaller questions today are about poverty and income inequality in the world today. Okay, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Okay, question one. In 1990, the UN set a series of millennium development goals with the goal of improving the lives of the world's poorest people. Goal one was to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger with the target to halve by 2015 the proportion of people in the world whose income was less than US $1.25 a day. When was this goal achieved? Was it A, never, it still hasn't been achieved? B, 2010, five years ahead of schedule? C, 2015, right on time? Or D, 2020, it was achieved five years behind schedule? Um, I'm going to say 2015. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, I do know the Millennium Development Goals achieved a lot. Yes. Well, it was actually B. It was actually achieved in 2010, five years ahead of schedule. So do you think the Millennium Development Goals were worthwhile? Absolutely. It was the first time the world came together, 194 countries, and put 
hunger and poverty in a human rights framework. We'd never done that. And actually focus, laser-like focus, on lifting uh, people out of poverty. Look, a lot of that uh, achievement does go to China, mm-hmm. but China's um, lifting their uh, poor out of poverty was a really big achievement in achieving the Millennium Development Goals. But it was true even in poor countries without resources, maybe landlocked without with na- nasty neighbours, uh, which you wouldn't think could lift people out of poverty. But because of the Millennium Development Goals, that was achieved. It was quite extraordinary. Mm, yeah. So it was achieved. So you got it right. You did get it right. It was achieved, but actually it was achieved a little bit earlier than perhaps you might have thought. Okay. We'll see if we can get you to pass here, Tim. But question two, it's a little harder though, unfortunately. So we'll see how you go. In 2019, according to research by Oxfam, when considering their combined wealth, how many billionaires owned as much wealth as the poorest 50% of the world's people? Was it A... 26, B, 61, C, 135, or D, 380? I'm, I'm going to say 26. And that's right. It is. That's 26 billionaires owned as much combined wealth as the poorest 50% of the world's people. The other actually answers were B was the answer in 2016, C, 135 in 2012, and in 2009, was actually it was 380 billionaires. So Tim, you can receive justice because you passed. You got one of our two smaller questions right. Congratulations. But Tim, these questions have highlighted that perhaps is there is there a paradox in our world at present? Over a billion people have been lifted out of poverty since 1990. The Millennium Development Goals have been achieved, yet the rich are richer than ever before. So is the world more or less just than it was in 1990? Well, in terms of lifting people out of poverty, we have made extraordinary progress. Mind you, coronavirus now threatens to uh, Mm -hmm. turn the clock back. At the same time, the rich got richer. Both actually are true. Uh, And it's not a paradox in the sense that if you're growing the cake, even though few are taking bigger slices of the cake, everybody's eating a bit more cake. Yeah. That actually has happened. And, um, yeah, one of the... um, points I keep reminding people who feel uh, despair and let's give up and the world's getting worse is actually we are making a whole lot of progress, particularly for those uh, parents who have not been able to guarantee their child enough calories just to survive. And that's the worst moral panic for a parent. I'm a parent. I know what that would be like. You feel a total failure. So uh, achieving the Millennium Development Goals and lifting so many people out of poverty has been quite extraordinary, but inequality is still growing. Mm. So is inequality a, a key driving issue behind social justice issues? Yeah, it is. When when you think about that word uh, justice, you can put a lot of adjectives in front of it. We think of retributive justice, which is our criminal system, an mm. eye for an eye. Uh, mind you, we're asking social justice questions of retributive justice, Black Lives Matter, is saying, but actually are Afro-Americans in America being treated equally in the criminal justice system? In Australia, uh, why are so many Indigenous Australians incarcerated? Are they getting equal treatment even in criminal justice? We can talk about restorative justice. That really is the debate going on about Indigenous in Australia and elsewhere. And... uh, 
when we came and said, no, this continent is empty and we're grabbing it and put up the flag and you now, uh, Indigenous, without your consent, all are subjects of uh, King George III, as it was <laughs> with Captain Cook. Was that fair? Do we need to restore mm. land rights? Uh, social justice is that sense of do we distribute the goods in society fairly? And uh, curiously, the main instrument of social justice in Australia is the Income Tax Assessment Act. Mm -hmm. We actually tax people who earn more, more highly, and we distribute that, whether it's in welfare or roads or educational health. So uh, social justice is, uh, is certainly about distribution. Yeah, so hence inequality is perhaps one of the key drivers then of what social justice is. Profoundly so. Uh, Australians and most countries in the world have an intuitive sense, and I would say that actually comes from Jesus. If you want to blame the passion for social justice, blame Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that the vulnerable, the poor, the weakest, the uh, those who uh, always miss out, are made in the image of God. They have dignity. They have a claim on us. That really underlines, in my view, that notion of social justice. You have been an um, advocate for social justice for many years, and for many years you were the face of World Vision. So how did you then feel going into disaster areas or areas of great social need? Oh, it, it was this paradox of being absolutely shocking to see the level of human suffering, an earthquake, a tsunami, a war, and at the same time, personally, never feeling more alive. Uh, when you're in those situations, because they were so raw, you had this alive sense that these are fellow humans, they are showing extraordinary resilience and hope that someone will notice and I can do something. Uh, so it was uh, both horror at the suffering and also exhilaration that actually we can do something about this. We will not abandon them. Uh, we can meet some of their hopes that they haven't uh, been forgotten. Mm. So um, it's a mixture of emotions. They're, they're curious emotions to have, but that's what I felt. Mm. Was there any specific situation that really moved you? Well, my first disaster was actually uh, Darfur. That was man-made. Black Sudanese were being oppressed by Arab Sudanese. And I was in a refugee camp in Darfur, which is part of Sudan. And I was simply overwhelmed that every woman I talked to had either been raped or her daughter or sister had been raped. The level of human evil, of malevolence, of cruelty. I remember coming back to Australia and doing a press conference and just dissolving into tears. Uh, it was a national press conference. It was on, shown on TV. And um, that wake-up call that humans can, in disaster, be resilient and the best of people, and human evil in disasters can be so evil, so black, so malevolent, uh, that was really um, the first disaster that woke me up to the complexity of human nature and, and of the world. Mm. So how did you process that? Because that's obviously massive uh, 
conflicting emotions and feelings there? Look, I'm still processing it and uh, uh, many disasters later, 14 years of going to every disaster that happened in the world, I'm still processing this. Uh, there will be occasions where I'm giving a, a talk, a happy occasion, unrelated to world vision or humanitarian issues. And without warning, I'll find myself in tears. And people listening to me will go, that's odd. Why is he emotional? And it's because I've had a glimpse of a, a face, maybe one of those women from Darfur. Uh, and that knowledge that um, uh, they were in undeserved, desperate circumstances and a little bit of guilt. Did I do enough? Mm. Could I have done more? I could fly out and leave, they couldn't. And you realize that you build uh, walls around your emotions just to go on coping. If you're in Australia and telling people about disasters, they'll be polite, but their eyes will glaze over and you can, you know they're saying who's playing in the footy tonight and, mm. uh, and you can't get angry. That's, that's the reality. But uh, for me, I still have those faces uh, and that suffering they went through in my mind. So tears show me that the walls you build leak, that you can't completely have contained walls around your emotions. So in some ways, I still go on processing. In, in, in terms of faith, that's why faith is so important to me. Mm. I hand it over to God. Mm. So does that help you process that, your faith then? Absolutely. It's this sense of saying I'm not the Messiah, it's not my world. I didn't create it. And the belief that God hasn't given up on this world, that it is God's world, that I will do what I can and try and be faithful to that, but I'm not fully responsible. I have to hand this over. That, that for me, is spiritually therapeutic. Mm. So it's freeing in some sense then, is it? that Obviously, you're motivated and passionate to, to alleviate it, but it means that you're not ultimately responsible. Is it, would that be right? Yes, the, the, the sense that uh, though I didn't do ever enough, I did actually stay faithful and I responded and I did what I could. And uh, that, that is actually important for me, that sense of ultimate responsibility. Whose is it? Yes. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's, just, let's think, dig down a bit more into your motivations for wanting to care. Obviously, you've seen these great, this great crying human need so is it your faith or is it something else? What, what specifically drives you to advocate for social justice? Oh, it's my faith. Uh, the, the idea of social justice comes certainly from that idea that everyone carries the image of God mm-hmm. uh, and therefore has dignity. Uh, but secondly, from the notion that in my faith, God is a community God. That's what the word Trinity means. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk of Father, Son and Spirit going out on mission, self-surrendering, loving, uh, we're talking about a community. And uh, if I'm made in the image of that God, I am made for community. That's the truest thing I can say about myself. And humans know this. We know this in COVID, that we are social beings, that isolation is really hard mm. because we're relational beings. And, um, you know, if you trust, if you track uh, the social justice history, it, it starts with Thomas Hobbes, who says, uh, you hand over all power to the state. 
and the state can't be challenged. The only inalienable right is the right to life. If the state tries to take your life, you can fight. To uh, John Locke, who says, no, it's more than just life. It's life, liberty, and property. To Thomas Hill Green, who uh, is the father of social liberalism, he says, actually, we're in a community. And therefore, the state also needs to provide health and education beyond just life, liberty, and property. Now, that development actually is founded in my faith on the fundamental reality that God is a community God, creates everyone in God's image, all have dignity, and we are made for community. We therefore participate in social justice, maybe called a social liberalism, because we are in community. Mm. And this is fundamental. And is your concept of community then global? Absolutely. If um, you people ask me about Christian faith, I say it was one of the first global international movements. It literally said neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek. So it was multi-ethnic, transcending race, saying uh, you aren't superior because of the colour of your skin or your gender or your sexuality or your being a slave, uh, being a free person over a slave. Mm. It was profoundly radical because that dignity, that image of God is international. Mm. So what then convinced you that the Christian faith was worth believing in the first place? Well, I I grew up in a Christian uh, household and I watched my father giving away more than 10% of his income on a teacher's salary uh, because he felt blessed because he had a sense of gratitude, because he prayed to God and thanked God for his blessing. He was only on a teacher's salary. We're in a three-bedroom weatherboard house. My brother and I shared a bedroom for 17 years, but we felt blessed and grateful, and my father's faith modelled that in generosity. Mm. And I um, then needed to make that faith uh, personal for myself, Uh, That's a long story. I've written my memoir a lot with a little about uh, those struggles and doubts and journey. But that faith that I'm blessed, that I can make a difference, that there is a meaning and a purpose to my life, that I'm not the Messiah uh, taking responsibility all off my shoulders, actually has been the source of why I've been a social justice advocate. Mm-hmm. Now, for many, the problem of suffering and pain in the world is a reason to reject the Christian message, yet you've confronted some of the worst suffering and pain of the world uh, in going to see global disaster areas. Has that strengthened or diminished your faith by seeing this suffering firsthand? Look, it's actually strengthened my faith. Um, to be honest, I don't have any glib answers to the uh, question of why there is uh, what we might call natural evil, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, and it remains uh, a question for me. If God is good, loving, all-powerful, why are there natural disasters? I can't answer that one. I can give you part answers, but Mm. they're not really satisfactory. In terms of moral evil uh, and human cruelty, born out of superiority, born out of standing on the shoulders of others and pressing them down, has reaffirmed my faith in in the the Bible story that there is a human fall, that there is 
greed, that we worship the wrong thing. I think humans are made to worship. All of us will worship something. And when it's money and power and sex, um, when it's our superiority over others, the Bible story of a fall and a fundamental fracture in our nature doesn't mean we're all bad, but it does mean there is a fracture and mm. that we need to be redeemed, that we need to find love and uh, be vulnerable enough to see our true nature, which is what the Christian story is about. Mm. Uh, because of moral evil, it's actually reaffirmed my faith in God. Mm. So moral evil has just made, meant basically seen that the Christian message reflects the true reality of the world. Absolutely. Is, it aligns with what I've seen, that uh, human hearts need to actually be transparent, vulnerable, and uh, uh, need to embrace what it means to be truly human. For me, Jesus uh, is the full, true human. Salvation is being like Jesus, being truly human. Mm. Uh, and the redemption that I feel I found in faith in Jesus is that accepting my brokenness, sinfulness, fracture, and seeking with his offer and love to be truly human. Mm. Now, Tim, you mentioned your faith is obviously fundamental to what you do with advocating for social justice. And there's a passage of in an Old Testament book of Micah, which was written in the 8th century BC to the nation of Israel, which is perhaps relevant. Uh, Israel had disobeyed God and God was threatening judgment. And in the situation of this people, in chapter 6, Micah writes about the response that God desires. He doesn't want ritualistic and legalistic sacrifices. Instead, he shares what he wants in verse 8. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So, Tim, how do you react to this exhortation here to act justly? Look, I, I, I don't think there's a verse in Scripture that is so practical, you know, when we think of all the, the complexities there is in reading Old Testament and New Testament and all the theologies. It's lovely when you have a question, what does God require? Let's just cut right through here. And such a clear, simple answer to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's why I find this so clarifying. Doing justice is... Uh, really what the prophets were on about. They were saying, God wants there to be no poor among you. That's why they had every seven years forgiveness of loans so the poor Israelites could have a fresh start. Every 50 years, a jubilee, because property in an agricultural society would change hands. A widow would sell it to, uh, to look after her boys, but they'd have nothing to farm. So every 50 years, jubilee, where the property goes back to the original farmer, uh, original owner. That sense that justice means uh, there is self-sufficiency and respect and economic opportunity for all was the message of the prophets. Uh, that's a social justice message. Well, many of the similar themes uh, are found in the Old Testament wisdom book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, it says... Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So do you think this captures a biblical vision for advocacy? It, it certainly does. Um, advocacy is speaking up. Advocacy is saying 
Why were these people left out? And the interesting thing about the prophets was that 26 times the prophets said, love the refugee, called in the Old Testament, the stranger. Why? Because God's face is seen in the refugee. That is quite profound in tribal cultures where you see your tribe as superior. And as we know, the world is re-tribalizing profoundly at the moment. It's about America first, Russia first, China first. Uh, we don't care about others. That profound retribalizing. And here were the prophets saying, no, God's face. So it's spiritual. It's not just a political message. God's face is seen in the stranger, the refugee. If you are to lo love God, you actually have to care for that person. So suddenly you have a view of faith that is profoundly about justice. It's not just justice uh, in a political sense, but in a whole spiritual vision of a multi-ethnic, above race, love of people because they, they carry the image of God. So do you think this, this perhaps then distinguishes biblical justice from other forms of secular justice? Yeah, I, I think um, when atheists and secular people talk about a social justice, atheists and secular people do not understand that if God is dead, as Nietzsche said, they would be more honest uh, preaching Nietzsche's, uh, well, it's the excellent, the strong and the wicked who do the best things for the world. Uh, Christianity, Nietzsche said, is a slave morality. It's the revenge of the poor and the meek. And he despised Christianity. Why? Because it prioritized the poor, the vulnerable, the weak. Actually, social justice belongs to Jesus. And even on the cross, which was the ultimate instrument of power over others, executing anyone treacherous to Rome and slaves and uh, those who were, when they were crucified, humiliated with an agonizing death for two or three days in public, God in dying in Jesus on the cross is saying God is with the most vulnerable, the poorest. So social justice actually for me is profoundly centered in the cross and isn't simply something that is a secular enlightenment invention. So Tim, why advocate for social justice? Because this is, for my faith, why God made us, why God's redeeming the world, uh, why God loves absolutely everyone, particularly those most powerless, most vulnerable. That's why I advocate for social justice. Hmm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's reflections on the, the big question, why advocate for social justice, from Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Tim Costello. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope it got you thinking. Today was the fourth and a final show in what we dubbed Justice Month, 
where over four weeks we asked a diverse range of guests a number of big questions about a series of contemporary social justice issues, from St. Judy Wood and her work as an advocate for asylum seekers, to an undercover investigator with International Justice Mission, to spur Africa and their work of empowerment in the slums of Kenya. Each has explored a different area of justice in the world and what motivates them to care. It's been a great series. But next week, we change focus a bit. We travel internationally again, but this time to Oxford in the UK, where we meet Dr. Tim Hinks, a respiratory researcher and doctor who is caring for COVID patients at the height of the pandemic, and who's been involved in ongoing respiratory research. It's another terrific conversation as we ask the big question, what has COVID taught us? I look forward to bringing you that conversation with you next week. Now, finally, ensure that you like bigger questions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to invest in bigger thinking, and maybe you could support us on Patreon. Even for as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions for all the details. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Please share this show with someone you might think would benefit from it. Let's get more people asking the bigger questions of life. Now, look forward to joining you next week. But in the meantime, remember to keep asking the bigger questions.